Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for, for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I shall not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, she sh he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the word of the Lord. So these are one of those passages, right? These are one of those passages where you look at this and it's absolutely perplexing and you're going, what in the world is this even relevant for us today? You read some of these things and go, what does this even mean? What does this mean? To bore a hole in somebody's ear? Are you serious? It, it perplexes us. And maybe some of you are going, this kind of gets me angry. And you maybe want to say, I knew it. I knew it. They were all right. The Bible does encourage slavery, and the Bible does demean women. I knew it. How disrespectful is this? What kind of a God do we serve? And it, there's something inside us where it kind of offends our sensibilities, right? It makes us wonder even, how does this apply to our lives? So what do we do with this? It feels irrelevant. But today's sermon illustrates why we as a church practice expositional preaching here at Missio Dei Church. Why we go through sections of scripture, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. Why do we walk through? It, because these things would never be preached on a Sunday morning in most Churches around us, even good evangelical churches, their pastors will say, I am not touching that baby with a 10-foot pole. No way. It's not warm. It's not fuzzy. Instead, what we don't do, what we choose not to do, is we don't pick a topic and then find verses that, that teach that. Because there's a certain danger in that, that we're not teaching the full counsel, the whole counsel of God's word. So... This is the type of passage that I would not normally choose for myself to preach. It's not easy stuff. But be, because we believe that God gives us all of his word, 
all of his word for our good, we choose to trust him that what he has to say even this morning is good. I, I want to remind you from Scripture, from Second uh, Timothy 3.16. And this should probably just kind of be a creed for us. Second Timothy 3.16 and 17. And listen to it. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God might be competent and equipped for every good work. So all of Scripture, even Exodus 21, 1 through 11, and the following verses and chapters that are to come, are for our good. They, they will mature you. They will train you up into righteousness so that you are equipped for every good work. So this morning, as we walk through this kind of perplexing section of Scripture, let's be a people who come to God's Word humbly. Humbly, giving God the benefit of the doubt and hungry to learn from Him. So, before we go any further, let's pray. Father God, You have breathed out these words. They are inspired. They are infallible. They are inerrant. And therefore, our good. So, Father God, would you speak as you have in days of old in the New Testament? Would you speak to us again this morning through your spirit and through the word to teach us, to grow us up into Christ who is our head? Speak, O oh Lord, for we are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So after six months of being in Egypt and watching God's judgments being played out, the children of Israel were freed from the tyrannical hand of Pharaoh. They were now free people leaving Egypt, and the powerful Egyptian army was quite literally waterlogged at the bottom of the Red Sea. And now the children of Israel were camped around Mount Sinai, and they were hearing from God. They were seeing thunder and lightning. They were seeing and hearing God. And they, they saw Moses go up and down the mountain a number of times to meet with God. And they received from that time the Ten Commandments. It was, Moses was mediating for the people. And the children of Israel made a commitment to be God's covenant children. And they were now in a covenant commitment with the Lord of the universe, hearing from him. And now God is enumerating all the various aspects of how this, this covenant is going to be working out by offering what we might call case laws. When certain things come before a judge, this is how they will be handled. And he begins with slaves. But before we get into the specifics... I want you to hear three very important things. Number one, passages like these were tragically, tragically used and misused and abused to justify the existence of slaves here in the Americas and in the world across. 
tragically used to abuse other people who were created in the image of God. And sadly, much of that, what has happened here in the States, has still affected us and impacted us. Whether we believe it or not, slavery in the early years of the United States still has a trickle effect down to us and is affecting us. Some of the people in those times and those ages were just outright wicked, terrible people, twisting the Bible to serve their own purposes. And this should make us extremely watchful and and careful for such practices even today. Slavery is alive today. And not just in foreign countries abroad, but even here in the United States. Slavery exists here. Honestly, some of the people in those days and ages were were just truly confused. They, They heard from pulpits messages that were contrary to Scripture. And these were men and women of the age unable to break out and and see and hear God's Word. And this should honestly create in us a righteous anger of the injustice that took place, the misuse of God's holy, inspired, and good Word. It should make us angry, but it should also make us humble today as we read the Bible. And as we apply them, these words to our world today, we must, be, must say clearly that these practice, practices did not, did not reflect the character and the works of our Lord. And we should apologize. And I know some of us go, I should not have to apologize for, for what slave owners did. Man, read the Bible. Nehemiah confessed for the sins of their current place, but also for their past. We need to be people who apologize and confess that these things were wrong. And that we, that those people did deplorable things. Secondly, however, the second thing to note is that the slavery described here in Exodus 21 is nothing like what we experienced in the Americas. Nothing. Look at verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So in other words, if you kidnap someone and bring them into slavery... And or if you bought somebody who was kidnapped and brought into slavery, you deserve the death penalty. You do not steal another human being and force them into any kind of labor. It was absolutely forbidden. It resulted in the death penalty for anybody who was involved. And people who use scripture for their proof text absolutely ignore sections like that. We should, the, the American South should have absolutely been annihilated if they were faithful to Scripture. Anyone, check out verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. It just goes one step further. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his 
slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. If this servant in any way, shape, or form was abused in any way, it ultimately led to their freedom. So the main thing we associate with pre-Civil War, American slavery, kidnapping someone, forcing him or her into service, beating him or her into submission, they were all, those things were all clearly outlawed by God's word. In fact, the slavery described here was actually voluntary. People who were very poor or deeply in debt could choose this instead of a life of poverty or crime. It was a way to pay off the debt that they owed, have their, their needs being met, and, and even pick up a trade while they were in this time of voluntary servitude. They were hired hands or apprentices, people voluntarily trying to improve their condition. So, but there's a third thing that we have got to be aware of. We have to trust the Lord as to why he allowed this practice to continue. We've got to trust him. And because part of us goes, this really feels unjust, right? Even in the New Testament world, a similar type of slavery, servanthood, existed. And there God speaks words to encourage his people in how to live in that situation. At the same time, Paul tells people to seek their freedom. Why didn't God just shut the practices down? Why, why didn't he just obliterate all the evil right then, right now? We have to trust him. We have to trust him. And we have to also know that through Christ, he is creating a new kind of people. One day, he will make all things new in Jesus Christ. However... In a world where this kind of slavery, servanthood existed, God put these rules in place to protect those servants, not to just protect them, but also for us, because this is good for us, right? It also points us towards something else. It points us towards something else. So I want you to have ears this morning to hear what is that, what is this pointing us towards? What are we going to be seeing here, finding its reality in someone else in another way, shape, or form? So let's start off with a manservant, a male slave. The first thing that we noticed, unlike in America, was that this kind of service was an absolutely temporary kind of thing. Look at verse 2. It says, when you buy a slave, Hebrew slave, he shall serve how many years? Six. And in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. Now, if you've got your Ten Commandments um, still kind of ringing around in your, your brain right now, this should sound kind of familiar. You shall serve six days, and on the seventh, you shall be Free, right? So this is, this is really the working out of the Sabbath principle, the fourth commandment that we had in chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Just as God's people worked for six days, long and hard, they toiled. They rested on its seventh day. In that way, just as God's people worked seven, six 
six days and rested on the seventh, the bond servants would work for six years and then they would be freed. And this served to protect people from a lifelong involuntary servitude. Six years was the limit and then they could go. But we learn something additional about their departure in Deuteronomy chapter 15. They weren't just kicked out of the door. Hey, bon voyage, you paid your debt. Six years, it's up. It's the seventh year. It's time for you to, to move on. They just didn't kick them out. It says here in, in Deuteronomy 15, if your brother or a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh, you shall let him go from you free. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your uh, threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. You see what's going on? Just as God's people were, were slaves in Egypt, and just as they were sent out of slavery in Egypt with tons, tons of Egyptian loot that was not theirs to begin with, so these slaves were to also leave with possessions that were not their own. The servant, no doubt, now had a skill. Now he had the means to, to start a new life, a new trade. There was, and therefore, this kind of servitude actually benefited the master, but not only the master. It actually benefited the servant. This man had moved from a desperate debtor to a hopeful freeman in six years. Some of you are going, I would love that. Because some of you have 30-year mortgages. 35 times more than what uh, Scripture is saying. You know, and you're, you're going, I'd love that seventh year free. Be down and out of this debt. So this scriptural passage actually should be refreshing for us. But here's the second thing that I want you to, to understand, to glean from it. We notice regulations also on marriage of male slaves in verses 3 and 4. Unlike uh, America, where families were torn apart, you hear just horror stories of Dutch slave traders going into Africa, tearing apart families, different boats, and even once they get into the Americas, they would tear families apart. God gave rules to keep families together. Verse 3 says, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married with his wife, his wife shall go out with him. It's, it's unlawful for a master to separate a man from the wife when, that he brings into this contract, into this covenant. And the Lord, here's the thing, the Lord has a high, high value on marriage between a man and a woman. And it was invented in creation. It was a creational order. It pictures the relationship between God and his people. Therefore, this rule keeps 
marriages intact. God loves marriages. However, we also see in verse 4 a regulation that protects the man's master. And this is where it gets a little uncomfortable. Squishy, right? If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. And he shall not go out alone. Some of you are going, Paul, I just thought you said God valued family and marriage. And now you're saying that this man has got to leave his wife and his children? I thought God valued them. What, what is going on here? Well, say that a man enters into servitude because of his debt, and he marries out of one of his master's female servants who are also in debt. And in that process, they have children together. Scripture is saying that the man cannot just take off with the help. Those people still are in a covenant contractual agreement to work off debt. So they owe money. If he leaves, if he leaves, he must go alone. However, there are, there, there's no doubt that the man had some choices to keep her and his children. No doubt. He could pay the price. He could redeem her. He could buy her from his master, which would be extremely difficult coming right out of servanthood, right? But he could also permanently bind himself to his master. And that's what we see third in verses five and six. The servant, did you see the word, how he feels about his master? He loves he loves his master and family and doesn't want to leave. If that's the case, he participates in a ceremony where he binds his life to his master. Look at it. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free. If he says that, if he says that, then the master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And the master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever, forever. I often get asked. Even my kids ask me. Dad, why do you got an earring? Deuteronomy 15 is my constant reminder. That I am forever bound to my master. In some way, my, me responding to the grace that has been poured out to me, that God's mercy and grace, I said, Lord, I, I'm willing to go to the door and have you mark me. Mark me. Is it required? No. Should every man in this place have, and woman have their ears bored through with an awl? Heck, I just went to Claire's. <laughs> But it's a visual reminder for me as I look at it. I am my master's. So here's what's happening. The master brings him to God, which would likely be the nation's leaders at, at the, the gate of the city. And they take the man to the door of the master's house, and he's held up to the doorpost on his own. And a hole is bored through with an awl. There's no ice. 
There's no antiseptic. Is that what it is? Uh, the stuff to numb it. None of that is going through his head right there. The fact that it's his ear reminds the man that from now on, now on, I am to listen to my master's word. What he says, I shall do. The fact that it's a doorpost reminds the man that he is now committed to the master's household. The hole in his ear served as a reminder that the two parties were now committed to one another. One who was boring the hole and one who was receiving the boring through. The ceremony protected the servant. He could not make rash decisions or be pressured into them. In fact, there was a declaration. I love my master, my wife, and my family. I will not leave. He declared it. Are you starting to see some pictures of where this is pointing to? And the ceremony also protected the master. He could not be accused of forcing a man past his six years. We're going to come look at this later, but this is just another reminder that we're not looking at cruel slavery like we had in our country. God gave us these rules to protect a, a manservant along with the master. But now we're going to look at some regulations. We're going to, first, we're going to kind of look a little bit closer at the manservant piece. No, we're going to jump right in because if I keep on going, it'll take too long. But, so let's look at the maidservant. This is where, I'm going to be honest, it gets a little complex. I've got a daughter. And you read some of this stuff and you go, what is going on here? And if, you, if any of you are fathers or daughters, you're going, are you serious? God, God's permitting what? But we, you need to know that this text opens up with the word and in the Hebrew. So there, there's a connection. There's some continuity going on between the preceding section. In other words, female servants to a certain point, were to be treated just like male servants. Just like it. And as we previously saw, God's kind wisdom was clearly evident in verses 1 through 6. But there's this startling problem going on. How can one justify selling his daughter? Selling his daughter. It, it, it's horrible to hear of a a man selling his daughter, particularly as a slave. But this is once again because of our contemporary concept of servanthood, which is diametrically opposed to what God's meaning means here in Scripture. There are two different things. It's hard for us to separate and say, but this is what slavery looks like, but this is God's design. There are two different kinds of things. According to Leviticus chapter 25, a Hebrew could be sold as a servant if he would become poor. It would only be, only be in extreme, extreme circumstances when a father, a man, would sell his daughter. And then his purpose would surely be to provide for her and to protect her and to give her better prospects for the future. And you can be sure that a godly father would be for sure to sell his daughter only to a man who would properly care for her. 
You've got to understand, Israel was, a, was not just a bunch of individual families. They were a family. Bound together by God's laws and regulations for their good. They were put together. So the motivation in selling his daughter would be a father's love. I love my daughter. And it breaks my heart to have to take care of this debt in this way. But I know this man. And he will care for her as his own daughter. We need to remember in this day and age, this culture, that biblically, daughters are always to be under headship. Always. A daughter is born under the authority of her father. And when she is married, she comes under the authority of her husband. And even an adult woman who is unmarried or widowed would do well in our day and age to submit to the leadership of the church. Phil Reichen comments on this. In, ancient, in the ancient world, a woman who did not belong to a household was vulnerable. Was vulnerable to all kinds of danger. It was not safe for her to go free. I might add that in the modern and postmodern world, it is no different. This ancient case law, in this ancient case law, one which initially may cause a lot of discomfort and pain and questions, serves God's purpose of pointing us to the glorious gospel of the grace of God. And I want you to hear how it does. In Ephesians 5, if you know Ephesians 5, think of this, that as your lens. This woman was purchased with a bride's price to be in the family of another. She was purchased. She was adopted to be the daughter of another father. Does that happen to us? When we've been transferred from one kingdom to another, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of another father. And this adoption was a means of improving her life. She was being delivered from a position of impoverishment of de or debt, and seemingly she had no choice in this matter, and it was actually an act of love. This adoption was, in some cases, the means of her becoming the wife of her new father's son. Thinking about that, in such, in such a case, what belonged to the father was now given to the son. John 17, 6. These actions were all covenantal in nature. There was no expectation that even this daughter would fail her, her responsibilities because she's part of a family. And all the responsibilities for the success of the marriage was dependent on who? The husband. No pressure, men. But the success of the marriage is dependent on not the daughter, not the wife-to-be, but on the husband himself. 
And if the son failed to, to fulfill the, the duties to his father's gift, then he suffered the loss. Lastly, the daughter was protected from being married outside of the covenant. She was covenantally protected and covenantally secure. So what we have here in Exodus 20, 21, 1 through 11, is a Christological picture of the father's love for his daughters. A picture of the father's love for his own people. And a picture of the son's love for his bride. Yes, it was meant to protect those people in that day, in that age, but ultimately, it was meant to look even further to what Jesus Christ was doing and was purchasing. So we've seen God's rules with, that God gives for dealing with slaves, and hope, I really hope that makes a little bit more sense. I'm sure some of you are going, I, I need a little bit more. I need like full-blown Bible study here. But the question is, what do we do with this? It gets to the point of, okay, if it, it is profitable for, for me, it's going to bring about some kind of gain. What do we do with this? I'm going to give you two big, big principles and then a third one that flows from that. Number one, we need to consider justice. Consider justice. In the last episode of what Todd and Amanda would consider one of the world's greatest TV shows, Easy. Boy Meets World, <laughs> Mr. Feeney gives the crew some parting advice. He says this, believe in yourself, dream, try, do good. And then Topenga replies to him. Todd, do you remember? Do well. Don't you mean do well? I'm kind of scared right now. <laughs> but do well. And then Mr. Feeney says, no, I mean do good. Do good. Do good expresses the calling that, the calling that we have as believers to seek justice. To seek the justice that, that people need. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke defines this word as this. Throw it up for me, Nathan. Next slide. The righteous or just are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And this is what God wanted from Israel. Even though these verses don't apply to us in one sense now, they remind us of a key thing. God wants those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have his Holy Spirit, to be first the people of justice. To be people of justice. And there's two ways that we can seek justice that we, we can see here in the text. One, in our work. Two, with women, how we treat women. First, let's quickly consider our work. Around America, employees no doubt 
no doubt encounter all kinds of abuse. They've been taken advantage of. They're disrespected. Their employers are facing, but the employers are also increasingly facing increasingly more stubborn and disrespectful behavior from those who are under their charge. It goes both ways, right? But the slavery in this passage is more akin to an employer and employee relationship. God wants us to be in the workplace. He doesn't want to leave us to leave the workplace and to be in an isolated community all by ourselves, have our, just a Christian subculture. He wants us to be people who seek to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of other people. That goes against everything the world says, right? Take bosses for a second. Here God protects servants from the mistreatment of their owners. If you're in a position of an employer, and most of you that doesn't necessarily apply right now, but God wants you to be just, to be just to those who report to you. Most of us aren't there yet, but someday hopefully we will be. But let's consider what this might look like for employers. Uh, for employers, we must not, as employers, take advantage of those people who are below us, taking more of their time and energy than they deserve. We must pay a good wage, provide good benefits, caring for them and their families well. That's, that's part of justice. You see it here. They lived in their household, and they were cared for, and they were loved in such a, such a way that when they could be free, they said, I'd rather stay here because they have cared for me in every way, shape, and form. As employers, we should seek to care for the whole person, developing them as we see here, leaving them as better people than when they arrived. Far more skills and debt-free. We must be in no way abusive with our words or our deeds as employers. We should seek to be the kind of boss that is, that is so just, so just that people would want to work for life. Life, if given the opportunity. Some of you are going, I'm ready to get out tomorrow. <laughs> but maybe that's because Something is missing. And we, as employers, we must care for more than just our bottom line. Although extremely important, we must be willing to disadvantage ourselves for their advantage. But I want you now to kind of flip the, to the other side of the coin of employees. God doesn't just protect servants, but he protects masters as well. And this angle might speak to more of us here Many of us are in tough jobs that we may just absolutely hate and we just want to be over with them. Nobody says amen yet. Ponder what justice would look like for employees. As employees, we must work hard, giving our, our employers our very best. We should work with honesty, trying not to defraud or take advantage of our employers in any way. We should humbly serve our bosses, seeking not to just look out for our good, but for theirs and their business as well. 
We should seek to show them honor and loyalty, not just taking what we gained from them and bolting at the first better-sounding opportunity. We should go into any job giving our absolute best, acting like it's the last we'll ever work. And we should be willing to disadvantage ourselves for our employer's advantage just as the employer should be willing to disadvantage themselves for their employee's advantage. That's what a covenant relationship is about. But we can't forget that the slave-master relationship here in this passage is brought about by debt. And I know that we're a younger congregation, and there's some of us who go, man, I will tell you about how much debt I have, and it's stupid debt. We bought at the wrong time. We bought foolishly. We've got credit cards, which are now 20% interest because we're not paying back what we should. I beg you, get counsel. Get help. Don't end up being a modern-day slave to debt. Scripture says we're not to be a slave to debt, right? But we are to be a slave to Christ. But when we're a slave to debt, we're serving how many masters? Now, two masters. So, secondly, I want us to consider our treatment of women. America's women and women across the globe, let's stick here, are getting abused all the time. Consider this information. According to the Surgeon General, domestic violence is the leading cause to injury to women in the United States. The American Medical Association estimates that their male partners assault 2 million women each year. 2 million! A woman is beaten every 15 seconds in the United States. And there's another one. 35% of all emergency rooms, room calls are a result of domestic violence. And one in five female high school students reports being physically or sexually abused by a dating partner. One in five. 20%. 1% is too much. So what are we going to do about it? We're, we're clearly in a different age that what we see we, our women need and deserve something different. They need protection and they need provision. Let's take protection first. The Lord is clearly giving regulations to make sure that women are well cared for and not taken advantage of in any way. For fathers, fathers, we have to be protective of our daughters. That, that was the intention of dads who turned their, their daughters into servants. It was for their safety. It was for their security. This particularly involves men. Care for, protect your daughters. As dating men, hear this. We must seek to care well for our sisters in Christ. Until you are married, she is nothing but a sister in Christ. She's not your possession. She's not yours. She's a sister in Christ. And even when you do get married... She's still a sister in Christ. Too many men use and abuse women 
physically, emotionally, sexually, and cast them away for someone else when the time is right. As married men, we must be faithful to our wives, seeking their good, their body, and their soul. Too many men get bored and get rid of their wives and search for a fling or something better. And as men in general, we must care for our sisters around us. Must. Treating them with respect. Seeking their good. We must disadvantage ourselves for them. My daughter has heard this time and time again. But when Grace, when Laura and I determine that Grace is ready for dating, we are going to be extremely involved and intentional in that process. It's not because I'm an overprotective parent or psycho, <laughs> but because I love my daughter. And she's a gift. Any young man who desires to date her will need to meet with me. I won't be cleaning a shotgun in front of him or, or sharpening a buck knife, but he will be grilled as I'm grilling meat. He will, he will sit down with me, and we, he will know me. He will be in one way, shape, or form. He will be dating me as he's desiring my daughter's heart. I want to know where he is at. What are his intentions? Can he protect my daughter? And I want to encourage every one of you to have that same mentality for our daughters. They are God's gift to us to be stewarded, to be cared, to be protected. Any man that wants to date your daughter without having contacted you first is a threat from the outside. Amen. Secondly, let's take a look at provision. This, I'm sorry, Mela, it's true. Dad will do that for you. The second is provision. This protection here primarily has to do with how financially things are cared. God, women are cared for. God doesn't want his daughters to be left needy. Fathers, we must care for our daughters. The dad, dads, this, this law addresses the bad situations where uh, the fathers got themselves into some kind of financial debt that they had to give their daughters, sell their daughters to pay off their debt. We cannot let that happen. This rule came because fathers were not managing their households. Or maybe there was total disaster in the land. And it wiped them out. But we must, as fathers, care and protect our daughters. As fathers and husbands, we must provide what our fam for what our family needs. And this means we develop ourselves so that we can provide, while also managing our lifestyle so it fits within our means. We must work hard, giving them a home, clothing, and family, and food. As men... We should shoulder the load of this provision and not pass it on. And I'm not saying a woman cannot and should not work outside the home because Proverbs 31 is pretty clear about that, that that is permissible. But too much of the time, we sell our ladies 
so that we can get things back in return. Single women, a word for you. Be patient. Be patient. Wait for men who are spiritual leaders and who will also protect and provide for you. Don't settle for anything else. The Missio Dei Church, let's be a place that looks out for those who are not being protected and not being provided for. Let's be a refuge for the abused and battered women that we encounter. And that will make ministry quite messy, won't it? But it is what we are called to be about. Let's especially seek those who are mired in some kind of modern-day slavery and seek their freedom. Modern-day, I don't mean any kind of prostitution, slave selling. I'm talking about crazy debt and caring for them and helping them get and rise above that kind of modern-day slavery. That's what the church does. Secondly, I am really running tight. Consider freedom. Strangely, in this passage about slavery, it's also really about freedom. It's really about freedom here. We see again a beautiful picture in verses 4, 5, and 6 of a slave who wants to remain with his master. Life is is so rich, so rewarding in that master's service that he permanently gives up freedom freedom. And he he goes before the Lord. He takes a vow. He binds himself to a master. And yet in that act, in that act of what we think is giving up freedom, he finds freedom. He finds freedom. His master's love is so great. So when we turn to the New Testament, Jesus calls his people to be bond servants. His apostles called themselves slaves as well. And when it, we come to Jesus, we give up our freedom. We agree to heed his voice. Where he says go, we will go. When he says follow us, follow me here, we'll follow him willingly. We bind ourselves to his household. We take on a sign. We're baptized. We take the Lord's Supper. We're part of a family that we don't want to leave. His love is so great, we chain ourselves to him. And that is where we find true freedom. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. In actuality, it's found in the right kind of boundaries. Finding our freedom in Christ. That's when we're truly free. Lastly, gratitude. Because of that freedom we found, we should be deeply grateful. Deeply grateful. Because that's what we don't deserve. We don't deserve justice. We don't deserve freedom. But we've been given it freely. And that should move us to gratitude. But the sad part is, is too much of the time we find ourselves going back to bondage instead of enjoying the freedom that we have now found in Christ. The beautiful thing is 
It was Jesus who lived just, who lived and died justly and a just death on our Christ, on the cross in our place. He became a servant for us. And ultimately, going to the death on a cross, he was pierced for our sins, he got what we deserved, and now we are free. And that should make those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who believe deeply grateful people. Christ actually delighted in being a bondservant. Delighted. And it was by that means of his delight, means by which his people, his family, his brothers, his sisters would be secured forever. Secured forever against the claims of Satan, sin, and death. And it was through that bondservant, Christ, our victor, that we were brought into his family under his care, the care of the great master, greater than any other master, our Heavenly Father. And when we consider His sacrifice for sinners like ourselves, we shouldn't be moved to cry, God, open my ears. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my life. And from that, we should become pursuers of justice, right? It should move us. Lord, take my life. I see injustice around me. Well, move. Go. Be participants in this world. Be salt and light. That's what I've created you to be. So as he wants us to be deeply grateful people, and as we are increasingly gripped by this gospel, this freedom we have received, it should make us propel us out into the world to show justice, to point people to where true freedom is found. And it will create around us grateful communities for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your work that you have done on our behalf. You are our generous and kind and loving master who has purchased us with a price. And the price that you paid was your own son, Jesus Christ. And through that sacrifice, through that gift, through that purchase, you've redeemed for yourself a people. Men and women and children to be your own. To be people that are cared for. That are safe and secured and protected. But people who are to be responding to injustices in this world. To be offering freedom that is found in Christ to people, men and women and children who are found in slavery. So God, would you work in us this morning? Would you change us? Would you change our minds about what it means to 
be free. And would that so propel us, Lord? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.